I'd like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, as we make our way through this a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, wherein he addresses several problems that were occurring in Corinth at the time. We come to uh, chapter 3, verse 18. I'd like to begin reading there to the end of the chapter. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Thus far as the reading of God's word, let us ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would grant to us faith and understanding so that we may embrace all of the promises of the gospel as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved in the Lord, you will be reminded of the fact that the Apostle Paul has been addressing the serious issue of division within the church, beginning all the way back in chapter 1. And he's not even done. He'll continue to talk about this overarching issue throughout chapter 4. But in, uh, in, in the last few weeks, as we've been in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we know that Paul is in the middle of a rebuke for the Corinthians for their immature behavior and their improper attitude towards Christian ministers. By claiming particular leaders in the church as their own in giving exclusive loyalty to them, they were adopting the ways of the world and forcing it upon the church. As Paul had said, he and Apollos were not competitors, but they were co-laborers, complementing each other's work in God's field and building upon the one foundation of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 10 through 15, Paul warns other ministers to be on guard, to be watchful for the type of work that they are doing as they build upon that one foundation. He warns them not to seek their own glory and prestige, but to seek the glory of Christ alone, and thus ensure that their labors will be lasting and valuable and will endure in the day of judgment. You see, the building that's being constructed here, this metaphor that Paul is using, is nothing less than the temple of the living God made up of living stones who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and also protected by God. As Paul had that very serious warning that if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Well, now Paul takes all of, all of that he's been saying for the past uh, a few chapters, and he begins to apply it now and, and sort of recap all that he's been saying as he 
applies it to the life of his readers as he warns them against self-deception. Look there in verse 18. He says, let no one deceive himself. Self-deception has to be the worst type of deception. It's easy for us to be on guard against others deceiving us, but what about ourselves? See, the heart is so dark, and it is so easy for us to deceive ourselves. You see, the problem with the Corinthians is that they were wise in their own eyes. Paul says, if you think that you're wise, you see, this warning, uh, Paul is warning them in the same way that he said in, in Romans chapter 12 in our reading of the law, do not be wise in your own sight. And this, this warning is repeated throughout the book of Proverbs. Never be wise in your own eyes. You see, the symptom was division. But the root of the issue, the root of the problem in Corinth was that they were conformed to this world. And they were conformed to the wisdom of this world. They thought they, they knew it all. And Paul says, you have no idea. And so if the, if, the, if the symptom was division and the root of the problem is that they were wise in their own eyes, the solution to the problem is for them to become a fool. Now, paradoxically, we need to understand what Paul is saying here. He's not espousing foolish behavior but what he's referring to what the world refers to as foolish or what the world views as foolish, which he already explained back in chapter 1. You see, when Paul talks about the word of the cross, the message of the gospel, the message of a crucified Messiah, that is utter foolishness to the world. And so embracing that message by faith and conforming your life to the word of the cross, well, that's what the world views as folly. And yet this is exactly what Paul means when he says, if you think you're wise in this age, become a fool. I think Paul sums up this uh, very well in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This makes utter, this is utter nonsense to the world. And yet this is what it means to become a fool for Christ's sake. To say, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. And paradoxically, by allowing one's life to be shaped by the word of the cross, by, by placing faith in the crucified and risen Messiah, and then taking up your cross and following after him. Although the world may view you as a fool... God will view you as wise. This is the wisdom that James says comes from above. That it's first of all peaceable, open to reason, meek and humble. This is the type of wisdom that God gives us as we follow after our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 19, Paul now turns the tables when he says, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. In the previous chapters, he's been talking about how the word of the cross is folly to the world. But now he turns the tables. You see, whereas the world sees the wisdom of God as foolishness, God sees as foolishness the wisdom of the world. And really the question we ought to consider at this point is whose opinion do you value more? Who do you think has wisdom figured out, the world or God? 
who do you, and I think ultimately it comes down to who do you fear most? As Proverbs talks about the beginning of wisdom being the fear of the Lord. See, the Corinthians feared the world. They valued their opinions. They wanted to conform themselves to their standards. But Paul says, no, you need to conform yourself to God's standards. You need to understand that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of true wisdom. And in order to prove his point, Paul quotes from two Old Testament passages. He quotes from the book of Job as well as the book of Proverbs, both of which we consider part of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Uh, The the first quote uh, he has there is in verse 19 when he says, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Here Paul quotes from Job chapter 5, verse 13. And it's an interesting quotation, if you think about it, the Lord is catching the wise in their own craftiness. This reminds me of an old cartoon I used to watch as a kid. The Roadrunner cartoons with Wile E. Coyote, right? Who every episode would get some sort of elaborate type of trap. It'd usually come in a wooden crate that said Acme on it. And he he would set up this elaborate type of trap to catch that Roadrunner. And yet what would happen? Well, he'd get caught in his own trap. This wily coyote would constantly be caught in his own craftiness. That's exactly what Job is talking about here, as the Lord uh, trips up the so-called wise in their own schemes. But it's interesting, whenever Paul quotes from the Old Testament, or any New Testament author, whenever they quote from the Old Testament, they're not just selecting the quote and divorcing it from its context, but rather, when they, when they quote something, they want us to go back and to consider that quote within its context. And I think it's important to consider this quote within the context of the book of Job as a whole. We all know what the book of Job is about, right? The overall message of the book talks about God's sovereign and wise providence in the midst of suffering. Job's counselors, the so-called wisdom, the guys who were bringing so-called wisdom to Job, could provide him little comfort. All the wisdom and counsel they give him throughout the entire book is turned on its head at the end when God finally speaks. And so uh, this, this little quote taken from Job is really a summary of the book as a whole. That no matter how much wisdom the world puts forth, at the end of the day, God's sovereignty and wisdom in providence is displayed in bringing glory from suffering. As James tells us in James chapter 5, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Case in point, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so even though Paul doesn't need to say that, just by quoting from the book of Job, his audience should immediately think, oh yeah, Job suffered, but God brought glory in the end. The next Old Testament quotation he has is found in verse 20, when he says, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Here Paul quotes from Psalm 94. And yet, if you go back and look at Psalm 94, you'll notice that Paul actually, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will tweak the quote. 
he tweaks it ever so slightly by replacing the word man with the word wise. And here I think he's using it in in a sort of tongue-in-cheek way. The so-called wise. The Lord looks at the so-called wise and he sees that their thoughts are futile. They're nothing. They're a, a mere breath. And so to consider this quote, I'd like to read a bit more of Psalm 94. It starts off by saying, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. There's our quotation. You see, the psalmist, in the context, he calls those oppressors, those people uh, who were afflicting God's people, who were murdering the widow, the sojourner, and the orphan, he calls those oppressors fools. Oh, fools, when will you be wise, he says. Because he calls them fools because they were treating others as if there were no God to whom they would have to give an account. And we all know the fool says in his own heart that there is no God. And so, of course, in their own arrogance, these oppressors in Psalm 94 saw themselves as wise. They boasted about being wise. And yet the Lord knows better. They, think they, were, they thought they were going to get away with it. And yet God looks at their so-called wisdom and he sees it is a mere breath. This is the same Hebrew word that is used throughout the book of Ecclesiastes as, as the preacher says, vanity of vanities, all is van- vanity. Well, the wisdom of this world is vanity. It's like a, a, a mist or a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. And so Paul, after quoting from these Old Testament passages to show the true wisdom of God, he makes his application in verse 21. So let no one boast in men. Let no one boast in men. This is essentially what they were doing when each of them were saying, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos. They were boasting in other men. And yet the gospel of free grace, as Paul has has labored to show, the gospel of free grace excludes any human boasting. It excludes boasting in either your, your own accomplishments or the accomplishments of any other mere man. As Paul says in Romans chapter 3, what becomes of boasting? It's excluded by the law of faith. You see, God was pleased to call the nobodies of this world granting to them faith so that they look to Christ alone as their sole wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Why? Well, as Paul said back in chapter 1, so that no flesh 
will boast in the presence of God. And to prove his point there, he quoted from Jeremiah when he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So there's no boasting before God. There's no boasting in man. And Paul rebukes his audience. He says, stop it. No more boasting. No more boasting in man. If you're going to boast, boast in the fact that you know the Lord. And yet after exhorting his readers to refrain from the wisdom of the world, to not boast in man's accomplishments, Paul then shifts to encourage his readers with the simple and yet perhaps the most profound truth that we find in all of Scripture. He says there in verse uh, 21, For all things are yours. All things are yours. Now we might pause and ask, what on earth is Paul talking about? What does he mean when he says that all things are yours? Well, he begins to give an example in verse 22. He says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Here Paul is echoing those slogans that the Corinthians were saying, and yet, yet he corrects them in saying that not just one minister, but all the ministers belong to them. See, each group were saying, well, we have Paul. And the other group, well, we have Apollos, and we have Cephas. And Paul says, no, all of us belong to you. Why? Because the ministers of the word are gifts that have been given by the risen Lord to the whole church. That's what Paul teaches in, in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4. In mentioning the ascension of Christ, he says he showered gifts upon his church. When he ascended on high, he led host. He he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Well, what are those gifts that that the risen Christ showered upon his church? Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. See, the Lord Jesus Christ, like Santa on Christmas morning, showered his church with gifts at his ascension. And some of those gifts, Paul says, are the ministers of the word, whether apostles or prophets or evangelists or pastors or teachers. And so Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, look, we're all yours. We belong to you because Christ has given the ministers of the word to the church. And so don't claim, don't give exclusive loyalty to one Don't claim exclusive possession of another. We all belong to you because we are gifts of Christ. But then Paul goes on to expand his list when he talks about what he, when he explains what he means when he says all things belong to you. After listing himself and his fellow ministers, he then goes on to list the world, life, death, Things present, things to come, all are yours. Here we see that the risen Christ's gifts that he gives to the church extend far beyond the ministers of the world. Indeed, they include the entire cosmos. That's the word that Paul uses there that's translated world. The cosmos is yours. 
And here I think Paul's expanding upon what he developed back in chapter 2 when he uses the same word, all, or as it's translated, all things. When talking about the role of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. And then in verse 15 of chapter 2, he says the spiritual person judges all things. Now, back then, we considered the fact that aided by the Holy Spirit, the believer is able to subject all things to his discerning gaze, able by the power of the Spirit to distinguish between the wisdom of this age, which is passing away, and the wisdom of the age to come, which is part of the new heavens and new earth, the the restored creation order. And so even now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can see, we can distinguish, not perfectly, but we can distinguish between what is passing away and what is being ushered in through the power of the Spirit. And so Paul, again, is reminding them, look, all of these things, all of creation is going to be given to you. It belongs to you. And that's helpful to understand in light of what the competition was saying. You see, the wisdom of this age promises our best life now. It promises glory in the form of possessions, power, and prestige. That's what the Corinthians were grasping after. They wanted some of that power. They wanted some of that prestige. They wanted some of those possessions that men like the sophists were able to have and command in their their city. And Paul says, all of that is passing away. And in contrast, you have the word of the cross, which doesn't promise glory now. It doesn't promise power, possessions, or prestige. It doesn't promise health, wealth, or prosperity. But the word of the cross promises suffering after we follow after our Lord, as we follow after our Lord. Suffering, that's what we're promised. You see that suffering is to be followed by an eternal weight of glory. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Wisdom of this age promises glory now, but it's fading. The word of the cross promises suffering now, followed by eternal glory with Christ Jesus. And yet the sufferings of this present time, Paul says in Romans 8, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed with us. If you want to get an idea of what Paul is saying here in this very brief verse when he says all things are yours, just go and read the whole of Romans chapter 8. I think he develops that whole idea uh, very clearly there. As he talks, he goes on in Romans 8 to talk about the glory that awaits the children of God. The fact that it includes not only the redemption of our bodies, but the renewal of the whole created order. As Paul says here, all things. So Paul talks about in in Romans chapter 8 that creation itself groans together, eagerly awaiting with us the redemption of our bodies. Final and ultimate salvation when Christ comes. And so it's important for us to be reminded of the fact that Jesus Christ did not just come to save our soul. 
He came to save our body and soul and all of creation. And we get all of that with him. Now, I love shopping at Costco. And the reason why I love shopping at Costco is because when you buy a product, you get everything with it. Right? You get, you get all the extra stuff that comes with it, rather than if you get it at Target or on Amazon. You've got to buy all that stuff separately. At Costco, you get the package deal. It's all thrown in there together. Well, that's how it is with Christ. We not only get him, but we get everything that he has earned for us, which is everything. The entire created world that will be renewed by him. That's what Paul means in Romans 8 when he says that we are joint heirs with Christ. Co-heirs. We, we get everything that he gets because he's earned it for us. As Paul says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We get the whole cosmos with Christ. And that's why Paul can list here, in, in this list, getting back to our passage, every aspect of human existence, the world, the cosmos, life, death, the present, the future. This list here that Paul expands upon is also finds itself in another list that may be more familiar to you. At the end of Romans chapter 8, when he says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor, any el- nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, no force in the universe can separate us from God's love because Christ has earned authority all of, over all of those things. He owns them. He controls them. As he says at the end of, of the, the, the Gospel of Matthew, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Or as Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 2, he is the head over all things. He controls everything. He rules the universe, and he's going to give it to us. And yet then Paul goes on in verse 23. After saying all things are yours, in verse 23, he says, you are Christ's. See, the reason why all things belong to us is because we belong to our Lord. We own the universe, and yet there's one thing we don't own. It's ourselves. The Lord owns us. As Paul will go on to say in chapter 6, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And so, on the one hand, we get the most profound truth that we own the universe because Christ has bought it for us and is giving it to us. And yet we get this other profound truth, yet we belong to Christ, our Lord. And so what does that mean? I think Paul explains that quite well in the next letter he writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when he says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. 
And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is what it means to belong to Jesus Christ. We've been crucified with him. It is no longer we who live, but it is Christ who lives in us, and we live by faith in him, living not for ourselves, but living for Christ as we love and serve our neighbor. And if we belong to Christ, then that means we belong to God because Christ belongs to God. Did you see that at the end? You are Christ, and Christ is God's. You see, it is through Jesus Christ, through our only mediator, that we can belong to God so that God may be all in all. And the fact that we belong to Jesus Christ is remarkably freeing. As you see in another passage in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus talks about this concept of all things, of everything, the whole created order. When he says in Matthew chapter 11, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is what Paul's saying here when he says, you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Jesus then goes on to talk about what, it, what it's like to belong to him, what it's like for him to be your Lord, in that he is the ruler of the whole creation, over, he's ruler of the universe, and yet he bids us to come and follow after him. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is what it's like to serve the Lord of the universe. This is what it's like to take up your cross and follow after him. On the one hand, it's the most difficult thing you'll do. And yet, on the other hand, it's easy, and it's light. Why? Because he gives us his spirit, who searches all things. And so this is remarkably freeing, the fact that we do not belong to this world, but we belong to Jesus Christ. In fact, it is our only comfort. As the Hutterberg Catechism, in meditating upon this passage, asks in the very first question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Well, it's that I'm not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.